We have the privilege once again to read from God's Word, so I invite you to take your copy of the Scriptures. If you're using a, a pew Bible, uh, Ezra 7, it'll be found on page 393, but for the rest of you, if you'll take and turn in your Scriptures to Ezra 7, uh, let us read once again God's Word. Now after this, in the, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Zariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Salam, son of Zadok, son of Ahidab, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Mariah, son of Zeruiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abushi, of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra, went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord, this God, was on him. His God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is a copy of the letter the king Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven. Peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors are freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. And with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole providence of Babylonia, and with freewill offerings of the people, and the priests bowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls and rams and lambs and their grain offerings and their drink offerings and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of God that, in, that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given for the service of the house of God you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasurers and the providence beyond the river, whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of, oil, of wine, 100 baths of oil and salt, without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you 
that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or any other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the providence beyond the river, all such as know the laws of God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of, of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took charge, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Amen. You may be seated. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And what a joy it is to come once again into the house of the Lord to hear the word of God preached. Uh, let's go before the Lord before we do hear that word and ask for his blessing upon our time. Oh God, what a privilege and a blessing it is even to hear your word read. But Lord, we also look forward to the time where we could hear your word preached. And we pray, God, for you to work um, very deeply within our own hearts. God, to hear that word. We know that there could be those, Lord, who, who sit in the congregation and hear but don't hear. But Lord, we want to be people who truly hear your word and, and do it and, and even teach it to others. We thank you, Lord, and pray this in your name. Amen. So kids, have you ever played freeze tag? Or maybe uh, red light, green light, right? You know, and there's just a lot of like moving and then stopping, moving and then stopping, right? Well, that's sort of what the book of Ezra is like when it comes to the timing of Ezra. There's sort of these times where it just sort of moves along slowly, like in chapters one through four, and then all of a sudden, you're 16 years later. You just zoom in the head really fast. And then we sort of move slowly once again, and then between chapters uh, 6 and 7, between last week and this week, 60 years have gone by. Now, 60 years is a long time, kids. And if you want to know how long that is, that's about how old Pastor Rick is, okay? So from the time I was a baby till now, that was a long time, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, you know? No, not, not quite that far back. But anyway, it was a long time ago. And kings have come and kings have gone and Darius actually is no longer the king. Now, his grandson, Artaxerxes, is the king over Persia. And while in, in the book of Ezra, the focus really is upon the Jews in Jerusalem, there's a lot of other things that have been happening over these 60 years and other places in the Persian kingdom. Uh, things like the story of Esther, where God used this Jewish girl who became queen to save his people. Um, Daniel and, uh, you know, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All these things have been occurring over this time. Now, though, Daniel is likely a very old man. And through all this, God is Israel's faithful covenant Lord and shepherd of his people. 
And, and when the Jews grew tired and they became very discouraged in the progress of the building of the temple, what did he do but sent his word through two of his prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to remind them of his covenant promises, as well as to exhort them to finish the rebuilding of the temple, which they did. And over these 60 years, uh, God's people have been doing great sometimes and other times not so great spiritually. And God now sends Ezra, and, he's, and we're going to read in a little, several, about a month or so later, about how he also sends this man, Nehemiah, to go to help and to encourage people not to give up their devotion to God's law, or to lose confidence in Yahweh's unseen providential purposes behind the struggles and the experiences that, that they have. And so we meet this guy, Ezra, finally, after six chapters, starting the seventh chapter, we finally meet the author of the book. And we see him because God sends him. And that's the first point that I want us to look at today. The first part of the sermon, that God is the God who sends. Uh, we see that in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. He sends Ezra. Now, what do we know about Ezra? Well, the first five verses... You know, is that genealogy thing, right? That's when we have our personal devotions and we just sort of skip over that part and just sort of jump to, to verse 6 where we really can sort of understand what's going on. Because that really doesn't mean a lot to us, but to God's people, this was very revealing. There's a lot that's said in, in the genealogies. For the Jews, I liked how one preacher put it, he said, it was like watching a Marvel movie where they tell the origin story of the character. That's really what's sort of happening in a genealogy. You get to find out where they come from. Who are they? What is their bloodline? You know, who do they descend from? You know, that's what you sort of find out in, in the, a genealogy. And, and as you look at this genealogy, you see these 15 Hebrew names, which are sort of like pearls on a necklace. And at one end is Ezra, but on the other end is Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. And, and what God wants us to see is, is that Ezra is not just any man from any family, but he actually is of the line of Aaron, of the first priest of Israel. And that's significant. It's, the, it's saying that Ezra descends sort of from like the royal bloodline, right? We might say he, he descends from John Calvin. Well, actually, we're Presbyterian, so we'd say John Knox, okay? But, you know, he, he comes from very noble stock. Ezra is a man of spiritual substance and comes from a spiritually distinguished family in Israel. And so Ezra comes with authority to minister the Word of God in order to serve the people of God. Now, that really takes us to our second point, and that is that, that not only do you see his genealogy, uh, his lineage, where he comes from, but also what it is that he's called to do, and that is he's a scribe. In verses 6 through 10 which would have meant that he would have possibly kept records for the king he also would have most likely copied God's word to preserve it that would have been part of what he did but Ezra would also be trained in the word of the living God and become an expert in the word as a matter of fact if you look at verse 6 it says that he is skilled in the law of God now that that word skilled literally means rapid okay and uh, what that suggests is sort of a, a quickness of grasping and sort of an ease of movement of this complex material of the law of God. In other words, 
what I'm trying to say is this, that he is a man that understood the Word of God so well, the law of God so well, that he could see how this part of the law over here ties to this law, and that this one here is really uh, explains this part of the law. And so there was sort of that sense in which he, if you went to him and you asked him a question, there's a sense in which he not only processed that quickly, but he also understood how that fit together. And so he was a faithful teacher of the law of God. And of course that came as the fruit of much devoted study in the word of God. But, you know, as impressive as Ezra is in his lineage, or even in, in who he is, what's most impressive about Ezra is not Ezra himself, but what we read in verses 6 and verses 9 and verses 28. Three times Ezra repeats this phrase, For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. For the, Lord, for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. It was God who raised Ezra up and sent him out. It was God who preserved the line of Aaron the priest. It was God who brings us to this point in history. It is God who raised up Ezra for such a time as this. So as I said before, it's as important as his lineage or his training was, what was most important was that the power and the presence of God rested upon him. Now that's amazing. And, and as I was thinking about that, I thought, wow. But how, how much more so for us as New Testament believers, as God himself indwells us through his Holy Spirit. So you see, as we look at Ezra's life, it's not men who make Ezra great, but it's God who makes Ezra great. And that's what God is doing here in Ezra, raising up a man to serve him, a man who is steeped in the word of God at a time when God's people needed spiritual reform. Now, a phrase that you may have heard if you've read much on leadership is something like this, that leaders are, are not born, they're made. And, and that's true. In other words, it's not like you're born as a leader, but you know, lots of times people develop into that. Sometimes the circumstances sort of dictate that. And in many ways, that's true. And what we need today are godly men and women, not who are great, but who are courageous enough to do that which needs to be done. Courageous enough to follow God and His leading in their lives, whether that be as churchmen, whether that be as fathers and as mothers, or whether that be servants of the living God doing His bidding in a culture that seems to be very anti-God and becoming more and more and more so that way. Whatever it may be that God calls us to follow Him, we need men and women who see the spiritual need of the day and rise to the occasion to be God's instruments however He chooses to use them. We need people on whom the hand of the Lord rests upon them. Now, the people of God had the temple but they, they lacked faithful preaching and teaching. So, so they began to atrophy. They began, kids, what that means is they became um, spiritually weaker. Okay? They, they weren't so careful to be obedient to God. And, and they settled sort of too much in the land and in the culture. And they sort of became like the people around them. They had been blessed by God in many ways. And even in spiritual, material ways, uh, they had become blessed. But their hearts were prone to wonder. And so God sent Ezra to them to call them back. 
uh, Derek Thomas, who's a, a preacher, he's a commentator, he, he uh, described the people this way. He said they were good at having a public faith. A public faith. Uh, they were doing a pretty good job in terms of outward conformity to externals of religion. Right? What that means is they went to church every Sunday. They were the ones who came to Bible study on Wednesday night. They never missed the women's uh, book group. And they always were at the men's discussion group, okay? That's just what they looked like. You know, they, they were faithful for all the outward appearances. They checked all the boxes. They looked really good spiritually. But when it came to the details that actually mattered to God, the intimate details of the heart, they were leaning more towards Sodom and Gomorrah. They weren't people who were faithfully following the Lord. And so Ezra comes to Israel because Israel is beginning to sort of slouch spiritually. Now, you don't see that so much in this chapter, but as we get into chapters 8, 9, and 10, you're going to see that more and more as Ezra begins to deal with the sins of the people. Now, this morning, if you were here, and especially if you've been with us in our study of Ezra, and, and you bear the name Christian, I hope you begin to see a pattern in the book of Ezra that, that God cares for his people. And I, I know we know that, but do we know that? That God cares for his people. God is actively involved in the lives of his people. God's divine providence is a reality in all of his creation, but especially in his church. And what I mean by his church is not... The, the institution, but I'm talking about the people. God's providence is so evident. God loves His people, and He will protect them. And you see God actively involved in the lives of His people. And I hope you know that God is actively involved in your life. And He's not letting you just drift along. He's not just letting you sort of hopefully make it and grow a little bit in your, your walk with the Lord. But, but He's made promises to you. And he put them down in his word, like promises like this. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is going to happen for those that are, that are God's children. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. For his namesake. You see, there's a, there's a very act, a sense in which God is active uh, in calling his people to himself. And as a matter of fact, John 10, 29 says that no one will be able to snatch us from the hand of God. Because he is so surely caring and loving and protecting his people. So, child of God, your father loves you. And as he is at work in your life to guide and to direct, to encourage and even to rebuke you when necessary and discipline you when need be that, that your heart may be long to Him. You see, God cares about the little things of our hearts and our lives. God cares about the, the details of our own personal piety. He, he's concerned whether we walk in righteousness, whether we are holy before Him. Not only before Him, but even in our relationship with other people as well. And as God's people, we must not be content with just checking the big picture boxes. Oh, I go to church, I give financially, I, I, I show hospitality in the church, I have people over, so therefore I'm good. The whole time ignoring all the details of what it means to walk with Him. I think about Israel. 
And you know, when you look at them and, and you see their practices, they would oftentimes sacrifice to the Lord, um, but they would also over here sacrifice to the Baals, and and they would they would keep the law of God over here, but they would also intermarry with unbelievers and stuff. And there was sort of this duplicity in in their life, and and that sense of trying to keep the outward uh, external religion and checking those boxes and feeling like they're okay, but at the same time, ignoring the attitudes of the heart. And when God sent his prophets to his people, he didn't say, you're not sacrificing well enough. You know, God would say things like this to the prophets like Micah, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Those kind of things you can't fake. Those are matters of the heart. You see, the externals of our Christianity is to flow out of a heart that's been changed, a heart that is dedicated to God. You could be externally religious and yet your heart be unchanged, but you can't have your heart changed and not be externally religious in terms of God. Uh, if I might use an illustration once again from Derek Thomas, he said a wise man doesn't just bring his wife flowers, he brings her her favorite kind of flowers. Remember that, guys, okay? Flowers are okay, but her favorite kinds of flowers, that's where it's at. He said he knows the difference because he pays attention to the details. That's what a loving husband does. He knows his, he's a student of his wife, and he knows her so much so that he wants to love her the way and the things that she delights in. Now, it's interesting today that you take that and you begin to, to sort of overlay the modern view of the church on how the church views things sometimes. And, and you see that in many churches, if a person gives themselves to the details of obedience to obey God the way he desires, oftentimes they're labeled with the label of legalist. You're just being a legalist. You want to keep the Sabbath day? Oh, you're just being legalistic. Oh, you just went to, oh, you're just being legalistic. But you see, there's a, there's a difference between obeying God in a general sense, I go to church, and knowing God well enough to pay attention to the details of what He desires and what He has told us here in His Word, and then expressing your love to Him specifically in obeying those things. Not to earn His favor, but just because you love him, you want to take him his favorite flowers, in essence. Calvin said, we ought to offer God our hearts wholly and completely. You see, even in the details. But here is Israel holding flowers in their hands, but abandoning the details. And it's been a while since the preaching, the fiery preaching of the word of God in Haggai and Zechariah has been preached. It's probably been decades by now. And what Israel needs, and so God sends uh, Ezra to Israel to tell them that what they need is repentance and faith. And so, who does the Lord send? Well, look at verse 10. He sends a man, and this is how he describes him, that had set his heart to study the law of God, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. You see, that verse, by the way, brothers and sisters, that's sort of like pastoral ministry in a nutshell and that could be a whole sermon in and of itself I mean Paul said sort of the same thing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 16 keep a close watch 
on yourself and your on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see, in, in what Ezra does is all the spiritual boxes are checked, right? He's not simply studying the Word of God, but he's doing it. He's teaching others to do it as well. He's rightly handling the Word of Truth. He's being a doer of the Word and not just a, a hearer only. And so Ezra ministers to God's people by the ministry of the Word. But God is a God who not only sends, but He also is a God who softens. In verses 11 through 26, and specifically, He softens the heart of Artaxerxes. Now, I, I, I would hope that as you're reading the book of Ezra very carefully, it sort of is striking you how the responses of these pagan kings, Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes. I mean, these are godless pagan kings. Now, I don't know what you think about our government in any particular point in time in history. You know, I'm sure we all have opinions on past presidents and uh, present presidents and, and everything. And sometimes, you know, I hear Christians talk and they're like, you know, this is a very godless man who's leading our country or who has led our country and, and things like that. But we just have to understand what we experience in our country is nothing compared to the paganism of these Persian kings and of the cruelty that they had towards other people. There oftentimes was not a sense of justice but there was a sense of just doing what they wanted to do to fulfill their desires and to get whatever they want. And yet God took such godless kings and he made them friendly to the people of God. I like how one person described it. They said, it's like turning solid rock into fertile soil. That's what the Lord did in the hearts of these kings. Um, that's why God directs the hearts of his kings. And so I, I just I just want to encourage you. I, I was just overwhelmed this week as I was reading this passage and just thinking about how oftentimes Christians are so reactionary to to uh, government policies or to things that are happening in our culture and the circumstances that we're in. And oftentimes we're so fretful about those things that are around us. And I just as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, why, why? Men think that they're leading our country. Even local officials think that they're making policy that makes us live by, but actually there's the hand of God behind all of this. And do we not believe that God is so powerful that He can take the solid rock and He can turn it into fertile soil? You see, the author is highlighting the truth that God's hand of favor rested upon Ezra. And that is why the king, Artaxerxes, acted the way he did. Because God directs the hearts of the king. And God will do whatever is necessary to keep his covenant promises. Even to use pagan kings. It reminds me, uh, as I was thinking about this this week, about the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. And Paul says, And what is the immeasurable greatness... Okay, he's, he's, remember he's talking about Christ who's died, he's been resurrected, he's in heaven. And he says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? In other words, what is the greatness of his power that you can't even measure towards us who believe? According to to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, that he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above, far above, far above. All rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. You see, that's what we see in Ezra. That's what we see in Ezra, that God has placed His Son over all things for the sake of the church. There is nothing that is going to thwart the kingdom of God. Nothing. And brothers and sisters, as I was studying this, I was just thinking, we have become fat and sassy and sloppy, and we have thought that we have to do the things in the church. Rather than turning to our God and praying to Him and seeking Him to work in a way that was just beyond our comprehension. And what you see in the letter of Artaxerxes that he wrote to Ezra is exactly that. It's just amazing. You just you can't make this kind of stuff up. Here is this pagan king, and he writes in verse 13, Hey look, anybody that wants to leave Persia, any of these citizens that I have enslaved here from, from Jerusalem to do my bidding... I'm going to give those people up and I'm going to send them back to their hometown where they can worship their God? That doesn't happen. Look at verse 14. Oh, as if that's not enough. Well, I want you to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God. Now, can you imagine a pagan king making a proclamation? Israel, go study your Bible. I mean, that would be like Governor Kelly, and I can't imagine this, but Governor Kelly putting the Bible back in school and then saying, you have to study it and do it. I can't imagine that. But God could do it. And then in verses 15 through 20, the king and his counselor said, you know, as if that's not enough, let us give some money. Let's, let's just give you money that you can take back, silver and gold and, and other things, and we'll write to the treasures and make sure that they give you everything you need, including the vessels that were given. I mean, that would be like President Biden and his cabinet saying, we're going to support church planting. Kirk of the Plains needs a building? No problem. We'll give money for lands and a building. We'll just do this for churches all across America. We can't fathom that. We'd like, okay, Pastor Rick, that's a joke. But that's what's happening. And if that's not enough, and Artaxerxes says, oh, by the way, if that doesn't cover everything, let me just give you a blank check in verse 20. And whatever else is required for the house of God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. Don't worry about it. You don't have enough. That wasn't enough. I can give you more. You know, sounds too good to be true. But just in case you're not persuaded of the mighty power of God to, to fulfill his purposes, then look at verse 24. He says, in essence, oh, and by the way, you guys don't have to pay any taxes either. I, I not only want to give you money, but you don't have to pay taxes. And then he doesn't stop there. You know, it's just like that TV commercial, those infomercials. You not only get the Gitsu knives, but there's more. You know, and that's what he's saying. He said, look at this. Look at verse 25. The king empowers Ezra to enforce the rules given in the word of God. He said, look, why don't you go and, and according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the providence beyond the river and all such as know the laws of your God. Put godly men in place so that they can function according to the law of God. And for the people who don't know the law of God, teach them. 
Oh, and by the way, if they don't obey that law, verse 26, whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Is that not too good to be true? Because God softened the heart of a pagan king. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but that just radically stretched my faith beyond what I had to think that God could do that. It is the same God that we serve today. The same God who has given us His great commission. Anyway, enough about that. Let's look at the last point. The God who blesses His people. He's not only the God who sins, not only the God who softens, but He's the God who blesses His people. And as you come to the end of this chapter, there's just like this wonderful doxology. I mean, it's almost like a doxology. The Ezra, it's a prayer that Ezra is praying. And, and, and the one who's being blessed, though, in this is not Ezra. It's not Artaxerxes. It's the Lord. Look at verse 27. Blessed be the Lord. I mean, that, this is just like what Paul prays in Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. You see, God is the one who blesses His people, and in response, the people of God bless the name of the Lord. That's what we see here. Ezra is saying, God, you have blessed me so much so. You know, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. In other words, he was saying, Praise to the God who has not only provided abundantly, but who also will enable Ezra to fulfill the call that God had placed on his life. He was praising God who not only rebuilt his temple, but the one who will rebuild the people of the temple as well. And so Ezra recognizes that God is doing a great work here, first of all in the heart of the king, but then even in the heart of his people. I mean, he talks about the God who extended his steadfast love. That's a Hebrew word, chesed. It means God's faithful, his, his uh, covenant faithfulness, his, his mercy, his loving kindness. It's sort of a hard word to translate because there's so much that's wrapped up in that. But that's how Israel came to know God, as a, as a God who forgives his people, as a God who bestows his blessing upon his people. And not merely physical blessings, but greater blessings of himself to have a relationship with God. But, but notice in verse 28 that Ezra um, doesn't speak of this covenant faithfulness just in a generic sense in terms of something that's for God's people, even though that is true. But he, he talks about how it was extended to me. Ezra is speaking about his personal relationship with God. Ezra sees the blessing here not simply for Israel, but ultimately for himself. And so Ezra said, blessed be my God. The God I know and love and the God who knows and loves me. And the God who holds me. The God who has called me. And so Ezra in one sense is a man after God's own heart. Knowing and loving him in the details of his life. 
and teaching others to know and to love God. And because God put his hand upon him, because God extended his hasid to him, we see Ezra says that he took courage. He took courage in God. The task that Ezra had before him was difficult at best, if not impossible. And yet he took courage because he knew that God's hand was upon him. And you may be here today and you may be struggling as a Christian. Maybe you're struggling in your parenting and you're thinking, I cannot do this. I cannot take another day of this. I wish Pastor Rick was done with this sermon. My kids are driving me nuts. I just don't know. You know, whatever it might be, you're struggling. But take courage in who you are in Christ. You may be here today and you may think, you know, I am so tired of being single. And Lord, I have prayed for a spouse and you have not provided that. And I am just wrestling. And the Lord says, take courage in who I am. Maybe you're here today and you've been wrestling with your sin and you just have been overcome by that sin and you like, oh God, help me. Take courage that God's covenant faithfulness is upon His people. You see, it's so encouraging as Ezra enters to see the picture of what God is setting him up to do. But we know as we read through Ezra, even as we read into Nehemiah, that the human heart is frail and will not continue to follow the Lord. And we're prone to wander. And as great as Ezra is, he's not God's, he's not Israel's Savior. But God's covenant promises will continue. And God will continue to save a people for Himself. And the salvation that, he, that will come will not come through Ezra, but rather through one who is not only like Ezra, but better than Ezra. A, a priest who is better than Aaron. A prophet who is better than Moses. A king who is more powerful than King Artaxerxes. And like Ezra, Jesus perfectly knows the Word of God. He not only knows it, He does it, and He teaches it to others as well. But it is He, it is Christ, who obeys God perfectly. But even though He obeys God perfectly, He, became as, he becomes a curse as if He was one who broke the law of God for us who actually did break the law of God, that He might take the penalty for our sins. And, and as King Artaxerxes said in verse 26, for those who break the law, there is punishment. And in a manner of speaking, that's what Christ, what Christ happened to Him. There was death, banishment, confiscation of goods. There was imprisonment. He became, as He became a curse for us. And why? Because like the people of God in Ezra's days, our hearts need reformation. Not simply improvement, but regeneration and repentance and faith. Brothers and sisters, as, as we come to this chapter in Ezra, I want to ask you, in what season, beloved, do you find your heart? Is it brown? Is it dry? Is it dead with outward conformity to the externals of religion? Do you look like a good Christian on the outside? And people would go, wow, this guy must really have a strong faith in the Lord. But you know that deep down inside your heart is dry. Or is your heart green, sort of abundant with spiritual life and producing spiritual fruit of love and joy and peace and so on and so forth. That fruit that only the Spirit of God can produce in us. What season do you find your heart? 
Do you find a heart of resolve to not only study the Word of God, but to do it and to teach it? Is this a, a dry season where what you need most is not to check the boxes of religious conformity and formality, but genuine repentance and faith? What you really need is the refreshing waters of the living God. If you're one who's never come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then, then your heart is definitely brown. Brown as the desert in August and dry and without life. And all that can make you beautiful, all that can save you, is found in the gospel story of the one who is greater than Ezra and what Christ has done for you. But if you're here today and you are his child, like the people of God in the Old Testament, so our hearts can be prone to wander. And we can enjoy those times when our hearts are abundant with life, but likewise we can drift into dry seasons where we're oftentimes far from the Word of God. We're not studying it. We're not being careful to do it. We're not, we're not paying attention to the details of God's words. Maybe we're reading our Bible every day, but we're just trying to get through our reading through the Bible in a year program. It's not really sinking in to our hearts. We're not really thinking about that in relation to our relationship with God. And we're definitely not teaching others. But you know, God is faithful. And in those times, He sends preachers. He brings His Word into our lives in various ways, maybe through friends, to call us back to Himself in repentance and faith in the details of our lives. So our lives may be abundant with spiritual life 